You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey, guys, welcome back to another awesome edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. My name is Kirk Barron. I'm so pumped. I get the great responsibility of finding you the best thinkers, the best teachers, and the best transition experts in all of dentistry to help you create a better practice and a better life. And if you're a specialist, you're thinking, someday I got to transition. What do I need to know about selling a specialty practice? And I bring in my good friend, Paul Slatton, to dispel a lot of the rumors that you have that are floating around. Uh, inside and outside of your brain. And it is an awesome episode. So check it out. Hope you guys enjoy it. We'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast, where our goal is to bring you the best thinkers, the best teachers, the best influencers, and the best transition experts in all of dentistry to help you improve your practice and your life. And today, one of the things that you guys might be thinking about or struggling with, if you're a specialty practice, is what do I do? Is selling a specialty practice different than selling a GP practice? And I think it is. And so I got my good friend, Paul Slutton on today, who is a transitions genius on, and he's gonna, he's gonna point the way to uh, to how to think about this. Paul, thanks for being on, buddy. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Good to see you again. It's always good to see you. I always learn a ton. And I'm just going to say this. He's not asking me to say this, but Paul's always been there for me. Any question I have that's difficult and way outside my circle, I call Paul. And I'm like, Paul, am I thinking about this right? Am I seeing this right? And he, he's quick to say, no, you're not. So uh, uh, I just really appreciate you. And um, you've been on the podcast many times before, but we have a lot of new listeners now, Paul. And I, I'd love to just have them know who you are before we get started. So who's Paul Slutton? I'm the owner of a, of a dental practice transition company. And I've been at it a very long time, more than 40 years. And I'm in a uh, live in Denver, and we've uh, done transitions in all 50 states. And uh, every transition, it's been fascinating, and it continues to be. Every transition has the fundamental basics in common with with each other, but every one of them is unique because the practice culture is unique as an extension of the core values of the owner or owners. 
And uh, that's what really makes it fun. I, I have to go on record and apologize to all the specialists who have had to sit in dental meetings and try to interpret how it might apply to them when transition as, uh, issues are discussed because they're all, those seminars are almost all directed at the general dentist. And that makes some sense because 80% of the, of the population are general dentists, but the, but the specialists get left out. Mm-hmm. And there are some important, some really important things to uh, to talk about and to discuss with them. So I'm really glad to be with you on this topic today, Kirk. Yeah, I love this. I love this. We have a f- special place in our heart for s- the specialty practices. Yeah. Give us kind of the the why and the lay of the land. What you know, you've been having a lot of these conversations recently. Where are we at on this map with specialists? What um, what is going on is that each uh, when we talk about transitions in general, every person thinking about transition has to put a plan together. And in putting that plan together, we've talked about they need their need to do it five years in advance of, uh, of when they intend to implement it. And the reason for that is there are some things to understand. I'll give you an example. Uh, orthodontic practices and pediatric practices are similar in, in that pediatric practices, when I began in my business, uh, were incredibly dependent on the referral community and getting little kids sent over from general practices. They, that didn't turn out to be such a sweet deal for the pediatric dentists in that they got all the problem kids and they got the little wild men and women and and uh, that made it difficult. For a very long time now, pediatric dentists have been generating their own referrals and building their practices that way, and orthodontists have as well. Orthodontists still rely more on, on referral base than pediatric dentists, but uh, there's been an evolution, a shifting of the way they do things. So. So a pediatric dentist can pretty well put a plan together like a general dentist does. And that is uh, all of our plans, as you know, Kirk, that when we work with a client are to um, help them put the business plan together and the timetable and the action steps that lead to the actual transition. But they're also going to want to uh, link those Practice, that practice plan with their personal life plan. And, and that applies to all specialists as well. If you contrast what a pediatric uh, practice uh, does compared to an endodontic practice or an oral surgery practice, those two practices are, are unique. An endodontist uh, or endodontist group of doctors, uh, if if it's a group practice, they need a succession plan. You know what happens when when um, Mary, who founded this practice thirty eight years ago, walks out the door, mm-hmm. having retired. What do you lose? What walks out with her? And uh, and what are you going to need to do in terms of? defining an ideal candidate profile for the young doctor that you're going to go out and recruit and bring into the practice 
to move into that practice culture? What other partners are going to have to step up in some areas where they hadn't been responsible before because Mary has always been the visionary and the keeper of the flame? So succession planning is really, really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, talk about the unique differences for endo and oral uh, surgery if it's uh, not a group practice or if it's just a, a solo yeah. practice. Okay. These two specialties, of course, are heavily, heavily reliant on referrals. And so they build work hard to build and retain referral relationships. And uh, one of the one of the cautionary tales that you hear if you listen to people who tried to retire and had a difficult time in it, I mean, in getting their practice sold for what they thought it was worth, is that they hadn't, they had missed the point of understanding where they need to keep their referral base expanded in terms of the age range. So if you are a 65-year-old endodontist in solo practice and you're getting ready to retire, there's a great chance that your entire referral base will be within 10 years of your age in either direction, and they're all getting ready to retire themselves. So a discerning buyer candidate coming and looking at that situation will notice that, of course, because that's part of the fact-gathering uh, that, that they will ask questions about when they're looking at whether they should be interested or not. And if you have uh, a tight bunching of the ages of the referral community that aligns with the seller's age, uh, you're going to have some problems because all those practices are going to turn over and you have no way of controlling uh, what happens w when the new owner takes it in a different direction, perhaps. Yeah. That's and there are so many things that can be done by putting a great endo uh, uh, process together. And it always, so they need more lead time. They need more lead time. And while it's totally natural and understandable that they're going to have a, a referral base that's within 10 years of their own age in either direction, it's also uh, gives them, they need more time to do it because the they need to keep bringing on younger referrers. Yeah. And that Sometimes, was good. Yeah. That was Go going ahead. to be one of my questions. I mean, even when you talk about dynamics in a church, they always talk about the average age of a parishioner. You know, if the average age of a parishioner is skyrocketing, you know, the church is in trouble. So we need to always be introducing a younger population. And so as a, as a specialist, that's one of the things you got to be keeping tallies on. So I love the idea of having this window 10 years in each direction, but being cognizant of the age of your referral sources. This very thing has happened in our church. I, I would say it happens in every church in America. It happened at our at our golf club, you know, where you all of a sudden have an aging population and need new young members to keep it going. And and so that same principle really applies here yeah. as well. Yeah. How does it, I'm just curious from a patient dynamic too, I would imagine the same window exists for patients or is, am I just speaking too much in generalities if I'm a 65-year-old endodontist? Yeah, the patients, there are some changes there in our society, of course, in that patients are living longer, much longer in uh, 
in many, many cases on, on the norm. And uh, so that isn't quite as much of an issue. It is an issue. But you've got to, uh, uh, you know, be sure and continue to meet people and continue to be intentionally visible. But one of the one of the barriers or one of the the things that block that kind of thinking is if you're solo practice and you're going hard every day, you're not thinking about growing your patient base. Mm-hmm. And and so after a while, uh, it, the practice even becomes a little bit stagnant. And, and it, it's what the predictability is for whether a person's going to be, the buyer is going to be able to afford to buy your practice uh, and, and will it cash flow well? So you got to really keep a, a really sharp eye on attrition in your referral base. And just be mindful of that. If you're in your 40s right now and, and uh, you just keep that in mind as you go through the remainder of your career. Yeah, absolutely. Oral surgery is the same thing. Yeah. Now you hear all these rumors. So again, I don't have any data to be able to support this, but I just came back from the ADA SmileCon. It's great. And I bounce around in all these rooms and talk to everybody and you hear this, well, specialists are dying. They're drying up. You know, I'd love for you to speak to that component. And then also, you know, this one drives me crazy because everyone's like, everything is group practice. And I'm like, no, it's not. Can you speak to specialists drying up and everything is group practice? I would love to. The uh, everything is not drying up in the specialties. It gets back to, to me. It gets back to what are you doing to keep your practice uh, healthy? Mm-hmm. What are you doing to to continue to have uh, a setting of practice culture that people thrive in and love to be part of? If you're doing that, you're not drying up. Right. If now, if somebody goes to sleep at the wheel. Uh, that could happen, of course, but I don't see that as a generality. And the other thing is about about the death of solo solo practice. Um, I think solo practice and the people that we know and see and work with is alive and well. For sure. Uh, I mean, some really amazing uh, people that you work with and that we are blessed to work with. Um, are thriving like crazy and really enjoying solo practice. Yeah. And I, I, I want to just caution if you're listening, so you're going to jump to another podcast. You're probably going to go to a Facebook group. You're going to jump to other things and you're going to hear the collective, you know, influencing financial powers that be yeah. in dentistry say, you know, the solo practice is dying. Well, let me just say why you're hearing that message because there's a lot of money if I'm selling a widget to find the big practices and cash flow, what I'm doing, there's a lot of money yeah. in rolling up your practice and combining it. But let me remind you, there's a lot of money, more money than you could imagine, probably long-term while you're working. If you own your own business and you call your own shots. Now that's my own personal opinion, but yeah. I'll, I'll speak to this. Um, I don't know anybody. I can't, I, truly do not know anybody who's like, I don't know, my practice is dying. I don't have anything to do. Most everyone I speak to run into coach, they are like, I, I'm too busy. I got too much going on. I got to figure out what to do next. 
yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I share that view and I share that experience in encountering people like that. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so if you get around to um, staying in a solo practice, it's uh, more challenging at transition time uh, if you haven't kept your referral base broad and and had it uh, in in good once again in good healthy condition like your practice is. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So if I'm buying an endo practice right now, yeah. what am I really paying for? If you were coaching me on like you and I are going into the you and I I'm the endodontist, you're helping me. Like you're telling me, Kirk, this is what we're going to be looking for with this endo practice. If I might. If I might just take a, a brief step back, I would say we're, we're working with someone on that in that exact situation right now, a young endodontist, who's looking for a practice to own. He's been an associate in three different practices over the last six years, and he is um, looking for something to buy that can be his own. And um, so when we started with him, the first questions we asked him, do you know what you're looking for? Have you identified what would be an ideal setting for you? Where do you want to live? Where do you want to raise your kids? Where do you where would you feel great uh, practicing? What kind of practice do you want to have? What kind of a team do you want to put together? What are your thoughts? What what are your money issues? What kind of school loan debt do you have? Um, what size practice are you looking to buy? And the thing about endo practices is that they're so doggone profitable. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's it, it's not unusual to find one with 65% profit margin yep. taxed, mm-hmm. as you know. And and uh and they have the lowest overhead of anybody in dentistry. For sure. Yeah. And no hygienists, no no lab bills. Well, they do they do now with their because they're doing extractions and and uh, all of that, yeah, placing now, implants. I got to get the. I got to get the. Are. I know, absolutely. I got to. I got to get the listener caught up on this because this is this is why I love Paul the most. If you listen carefully, he's like, "Where do you want to live? Where do you want to raise your kids? You know, what kind of practice? What kind of team do you want to have?" Like, um, getting all of those things right while it's going to limit your your options. You yeah. know, you're now going to go from fifty opportunities down to ten. You know, that is a good thing because the options you now choose stick longer. You'll ultimately be happier. And I've seen this, which you have too. People fly to a town. Unfortunately, when a specialist passes away and they're like, oh, there's this, there's this perio practice and this dentist unfortunately passed away. I'm like, where is it? And they tell me, and I'm like, that's like six states away from here. And it's in the middle of the state. Like, are you sure? Well, it's a great practice. I'm like, have you really talked to your spouse about this? And they're like, no, I'm going to go check it out. So sometimes those stories end up pretty well. But really, at the end of the day, the reason you became a dentist was you wanted to wake up and enjoy your life. So that's why the first offer isn't always you got to find the right fit for you. And that that goes for anybody. It goes for your kids that you might be teaching anything. It's it's it goes with your practice that you're going to purchase. So I just love the quality of your questions, Paul. The kid. Thank you. The, the, the kids, your kids can 
can learn a great deal and add some life skills themselves by watching mom or dad go through a transition. Mm-hmm. You see what it takes. It, you have to do a whole bunch of clarifying. You have to, uh, whether you're buying a practice and getting into practice and launching a career, or whether you're ready to get out. And and uh, the planning skills are, are life skills that kids need to be exposed to intentionally. Um, and there are great benefits that come when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, What's, oh, go ahead. You had another thought. I was just going to, I was just going to say, uh, going back to a, a prior comment you made, it's important for people to understand that there, that several of the loudest preachers out there saying that solo practice is dying or dead and comparing it to the dinosaurs, they're investors in DSOs. For sure. They, they risk, they, they, the reason they speak so loudly and so well is they are the ones positioned to benefit the most from you buying what they're selling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, so, you know, go ahead. As we're, as we're working with this, with this young endodontist, um, we're asking them all these questions and, and uh, they're, they're getting, uh, as a couple, and they're getting, you need the input of both parties, of both huge stakeholders. One will run the practice and be in the practice. The other might very well not be in the practice. And, uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're influencers. They're, they need to make some decisions together. Um, you know, do they have a, like, it's, it's selecting a community. There are awesome practices available in in smaller towns i don't mean tiny towns like the one i grew up in of 2500 people but i mean the i mean 50,000 you know 60 75,000 there're unbelievably good lifestyles available in communities like that and amazing practices uh and and i strongly recommend people at least look at those if they have proximity to a major uh, city, that's all, even better. But there are great lives to be lived in places like that as well as an option. For sure. And can I ask you, and you you can say, hey, look, it varies. But like, let's say, let's go through each one of them. Endo, oral surgeon, you know, no different than a GP in some respect. You don't need every single person in a 50,000 you know, person town an oral surgeon probably needs how many patients and how many docs referring. I mean, if I'm a solo doc, you're looking at, you're looking at, I'll give you a big number and I'll give you a small number. Great. A big number would be 45 to 50. Okay. You know, to have a relationship with that many people, but you're going to make it or break it based on the dirty dozen. If you have 12 great referrers right. who are who are just, you've got a career. Yeah. As long as you nurture those relationships and and pay close attention to them. Yeah, that, that I've found to be absolutely true. It's the 80-20 principle. 80% of referrals yes, are going to come from 20% of them. And no different than you coding patients A, B, and C. 
you know, every specialist I know has got their A referrals, their B referrals and their C referrals. And they treat them all with the same level of dignity and respect. It's just that the A referrals get better access and maybe, you know, preferential scheduling in some respects. So it's important to build the right practice that way. Um, I agree. Yeah. I want to go to profitability too, because as a specialist, you know, you taught me this. If I'm a young dentist, now let's talk as a seller. I'm selling a specialty practice. Profitable practices are the best ones to buy in some respects too. So building a monstrosity where you have a 78% overhead, that's not so easy to sell as a practice that has a 55% overhead. Is that true if I'm a specialist? Totally true. Yes, it's absolutely true. It, uh, we see practices that are, you know, everybody is, is, uh, likes to talk about million dollar plus practices. We've seen a ton of them, but we've seen some marvelous practices that are generating less than a million and a really excellent bottom line. We have a periodontist, uh, practicing in the Keys in Florida, uh, who's, who's doing, uh, slightly more than a million a year on three days a week and uh, has a net of 600,000. That's great. Yeah. It's great. It's a great place and a great net. Yes, exactly. And a great work week. Right. Exactly. He takes a whole bunch of weeks off, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's another thing just to, there's so many things you could do to tailor a schedule. You guys are experts at this at act. Uh, uh, to help people by tailoring a schedule and your and your work commitment, your clinical time at the chair commitment, and you can do all kinds of things with that that are creative and that will blend in beautifully with your lifestyle. Yeah, I'm just a big fan of living in this country, and you get to choose, and yeah. you can make your rules. And if you don't like the rules, you can change the rules. You can change back. You can try everything. So. Don't ever think as a listener, you're kind of locked into something. No, you're not. Not at right. all. You can change anything in a moment's notice. Um, and then anything else you would say, like from a selling standpoint, like if I'm a seller of a specialty practice, what are some other, you know, red flags or important items I really want to focus on before I transition out? Yeah. Let me, let me address, Kirk, if I may, periodontal practices. Please. Perio practices are, uh, have been going under, they have been, the, the specialty has been evolving and morphing into something very different than it was 20, 25 years ago. When they, when every periodontist in the country had a huge hygiene practice within the practice, that's not so much the case anymore. Some still do. Um, so I, and, and I just want to use, the periodontist as an illustration of what's happening within the specialty practices. All specialties have evolved. All specialties have evolved. And, and, uh, and perio has really evolved. And, and so periodontists are key players in, in, in these dental teams that work together to help an individual patient. You know, and it would typically involve a periodontist or an oral surgeon and, and a, an orthodontist and a restorative dentist. Yeah. You know, and, and, they, and they work on the, these amazing cases with life-changing results. And yeah. that's got to be fun. 
It is so fun. It's funny you bring up the periodontist too, because I meet a lot of great periodontists out there and I love it. Yeah. And when people tell me they're a periodontist, I go, you got to tell me what that means because sometimes you find the true perio, you find, you know, now yeah. somebody will say, well, I'm perio, but I really focus on implants more than anything. And uh, it's very interesting how you can let those practices evolve. And I even see it in oral surgery. We did a study group with a lot of different oral surgeons and took a look at all their numbers. And one, you know, one was as different as the next one. No, yeah. I make all my money in on thirds when, when, when you're looking at these particular months. So keep that in mind that just because you're a specialist, they are as different as the next one. There are those nuances that are somewhat similar, but, um, when you find what you love to do, you can certainly transition harder into it. Great example of it. I know a dentist, a phenomenal young dentist who's a periodontist and he's a true perio, you know, you know, perio guy. He bought an implantologist practice and he's like, listen, I get where this guy was going and I totally respect it, but I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah. And he's been killing it. And it's amazing. So don't ever feel like you're painted in the corner when it comes to specialties. I, I, that's a good comment. I agree with it. Yeah. So what other thoughts or considerations do you look at when it comes to transitioning this specialty practice? You look at um, your, there's a timetable that's in place from the time that a, a specialist makes a decision to transition this is why you need a five-year plan. Um, it predictably is going to take longer to recruit a specialist than a generalist. That There are notable exceptions to what I just said, but, but that's true, like what I just uh, mentioned. It, it's going to take longer. So you're going to have to, if you're going to do a, a search, let's say you're solo, and you're going to do a search you need to plan on taking two to three years. It can happen faster than that, and you need to be prepared if it does and ready and flexible, but it could take that long, especially if you're taking the time to be really selective so that you leave your team and your referral doctors in, in a great place by bringing in a successor that they're going to relate to. Yeah, absolutely. That's a gift to all of them and yeah. to the new person taking over the ownership. For sure. And I was just going to ask you about that because I get to see all different kinds of situations. Yeah. So let's say, uh, you know, let's say I'm an endodontist listening and I'm like, okay, I get started. I, I bought this practice. I started on my own. Then I brought in another endodontist and uh, we grew together. And this endodontist is 20 years younger than me. And so now I'm going to get ready to transition out. So I'm selling my specialty practice to my younger potential partner. Any considerations you would say in that when I'm looking at the long haul of my career, if that's my trajectory? Do you have a, that's a great question. If you have a two doctor partnership, your, your operating agreement for the partnership between the two partners uh, should have a clause in it. And the typical clause that you see uh, way more than half the time is that the younger partner would have the first right of refusal to uh, buy the practice on, on notification of your intent to retire. That's the wrong way to do it, in my opinion. 
Tell us why. Bias, I, I think you're way better off having language that requires the partner to buy it. It's good for you because it ensures you, the seller, of not having to go through some steps that are indeed avoidable. And it's really good for the younger partner because it allows the younger partner to bring in an associate of their own choosing and and move that person through a process where they eventually become an owner as well. They recoup their investment uh, with the, that person buying in with them, and uh, and they're they're not forced with un with a uh, with a partner not necessarily of their own choosing. Yeah. Which if if, if you're the selling uh, doctor and you have to go out and find your own person, certainly with the involvement of that second doctor. But then you're you're forced with an instant partner. You don't want that. You yeah. don't want an instant partner that you haven't taken to several dances. Well, that's what you I was know? gonna. That, I mean, that's brilliant there, Paul. Uh, it, my one of my questions is: Do you still see first right refusal? Because if I'm the younger partner, the last thing I want to do is pass up on this and then have you select who you're going to sell the practice to and say, "Guess what? I found your new partner, and he's not as nice or she's not as nice as me." Yeah you know, type of a thing. Do you still see the, the first right of refusal language on contracts? We do. And I, and I, I put it right in there with, uh, we certainly do. And I put it right in there with, um, with another uh, common practice that I used to see 40 plus years ago when I started in the business. And that was that you never tell the team until you've sold the practice. Now you have to talk about that. Both of those issues are, are, they defy logic. So if the if the there's a a lot of people who are brokers in the country, dental brokers, uh, cling tightly to the notion that you shouldn't tell your your uh, team until you have the deal all finished. And and why? What's the rationale behind that? Well, they'll tell you that that you run the risk of losing your team. If, if you tell them that you're leaving and uh, I say you run a far greater risk of losing your team if you don't tell them. And, and why, not, why not invite, once you've made your choice, your decision, why not invite your team to participate in the process actively? They should meet the candidate. You should get an idea from them who they, what kind of personality and what kind of a skill set, attitudes, core beliefs, you know, would fit in your practice culture. Right. They're the one who are the best, best insights to that, right? Yeah. I love yeah. what you're saying too, because I just saw one of my favorite docs this last week and he did exactly that. Sure. Now, there's a difference. And tell me if this is true. When you're a doctor selling and you have low trust, you could certainly embrace the whole idea of no, I'm not going to get involved with letting them know that I'm transitioning or who's yeah. going to buy it because they don't trust. Uh, yeah. We've got low trust to be, but when it's high trust, like you should have seen the look in his eyes. He's like, they already knew I was transitioning. They knew I had their backs. They knew I was going to try to find the right person. And I asked him, I go, well, how's it going? He goes, it's going better than I ever dreamed. And I told the kid when he bought it, my job is to make you successful. Like I, and I reinforce you own it now. And like, he's like, it's, he was so happy 
to describe that. So I couldn't yeah. support more of what you said, Paul. Absolutely. I'm not, you know, there are wonderful exceptions to everything. Uh, I was just in Minnesota recently working with one of your clients at clients, solo practice, great practice, great team. And uh, he actually said he'd been listening to one of our podcasts <laughs> and, and heard me talk on this issue about when to tell your team under what circumstances and what would the timing be. And, and by the time I got there to talk to him about his help and help him put a future transition plan together, the team was, uh, you know, coming up to me and saying, we're excited about being part of this. That's awesome. We are really in a good place because he trusts us enough to take us into his uh, confidence because we know it's a highly confidential situation, you know, to the patients and the community and everything. And we'll honor that. And uh, that was a real happy atmosphere. Yeah. Love hearing those stories. And you hear yeah. from you. I hear from team members all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, he already told us this is going to be he's going to be slowing down in the next two years. He's yeah. kind of, you know, so uh, the really high trust teams that really have done a great job of yeah. staying together. The expectation is clear, you know, and usually on the other end of it, as an owner, they care a lot about the people that have helped them build this. So yeah. they want to leave them in great hands, too. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. We had a we had a periodontist in Billings, Montana, um, who uh, called me and he said I'd never met him before. And he said, I am so tired of tap dancing around my re referral doctors and our patients and my own team when they asked me the question, how much longer do you intend to practice? I said, what do you say to him? I said, well, I'm not going to leave anytime soon. And, he, and I start tap dancing immediately and, and avoid answering the question. And I said to him, what you need to understand is the, when somebody asks you that question, they're really asking two questions. The question, with, the, the question is, how much longer are you going to be here, Doc? The second question and the real question is, what, what will I have to do when you're not here anymore, doctor? Will I have to leave and find another practice? You know, and so I said, so lean into it. Don't tap dance, lean into it. Right. And, and say, well, I'm going to retire at some point in my career. By the way, when I do, what kind of a person would you want in here? <laughs> I'd love your input. Yeah. And he just turned the whole thing around and he, and, uh, he just had a blast. Yeah. You know? It's, it's so great that you illustrate that because that's where a lot of people think. They think if I'm going to yeah. leave, everybody else is going to leave, not only the team and the patient. Right. So I just got to get my money before I do that. And that's not true. And um, we teach dentists all the time, not even just with transitions, but like anytime you're making a change, this is really important. If you're listening, when you're talking about change, it's okay to discuss change, but also never forget to discuss what won't change. So Yes, Mrs. Yeah. Patient, there is a chance uh, I will be transitioning out and I will find the perfect person. But what won't change is how we care so carefully right. for all of our patients. So you can count on that from my team and from this practice. And I think that's really important. And it answers or addresses both of those things, Paul, that you you brought up. That patient will breathe an audible sigh of relief. 
Absolutely. And if you yeah. can say, you know, you got to say it from your heart, you know, it's, you know, yeah. they know it's going to be true and you do too. So exactly. Yeah. What else about the landscape? You know, because again, there's so much chatter around selling a specialty practice. Any last thoughts you have on, you know, that we, we can, we can use as guidelines going forward when we hear this chatter. I've even heard things like the uh, periodontal practices don't sell for as much as they used to, uh, you know, endodontic practices don't sell for as much as they used to. That's not true. Yeah. If they're a great practice and if they're, re it's really a healthy practice, they sell for top dollar. If they're in a desirable location in a good suite, and uh, and where the where the owner or owners have taken really great care of the referral uh, referral community that supports them, uh, they're they're selling for top dollar. Yeah, and 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 that's just the reality of it. Um, so when people ask me a question, I, I would say, let's say twenty years ago. Somebody asked me the question, which they did all the time when I was speaking uh, at seminars and workshops. They would say, what are practices going for now in America? And I would flip them some kind of a percentage that, that was accurate, that represented, you know, 65% of last year's gross. You know, that's not net. That, that's not how we, how we uh, do the valuations, of course. Right. But, but you could generalize a lot more than you can now. So my question, when they say, what are practices going for? Where do you live? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's Austin, Texas, they're going for real top dollar. If you're in the front range in Denver, you are as well. If you're in Atlanta, parts of Atlanta anyway, you, you, you'll get top dollar. If you're in, in Washington, you will get top dollar. And then there's all kinds of really, really good markets for people with healthy practices. That's the key. That's, you know, that's, this is what you do, you and your great people at ACT. You end up having them, uh, you help them grow their practices and you help them be happier. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what you want to be part of. Absolutely. There's plenty of money to be made in dentistry and, uh, yeah. I, I would say this not only for specialty practices, but for GP practices or anybody in the dental profession as a whole. I mean, this is such a noble, incredible profession. It is. And all of the experts clearly indicate dentistry is not drying up. It's not going away. It's yeah. over a $350 billion industry and it's Isn't going to double within our lifetime. So there's going to be a lot of people in this world that need dentistry. And if you're a specialist or a GP alike, you can see when you look into people's mouths, they're just not naturally getting healthier all around the board, you know, Boy, that's, so, a fact. that's a fact. So, yeah. so, so rest assured, you're going to have plenty to do. Your job is just to figure out how do you want to do it and who do you want to do it with and where do you want to do it? And when you're thinking about all those things or you're looking to transition, Paul's your guy. So, Paul, if I'm thinking about this and I'm in my mid 50s or early 60s, what do I do? Can I reach out to you? Can you walk me through this? How does it work? I had a call yesterday morning uh, from a general dentist who's well known in Denver and, and has a wonderful practice. Um saying, I think I need a practice valuation because I'm at the very early stages of planning my transition. I said, what are you talking about early stages? He says, I think I'd like to be out in 10 years. 
He <laughs> said, but I, but I want to know what my practice is worth now so that I can appropriately put that into my plan. And, and so we're going to, I have conversations like that all the time. That's with people. awesome. If there's something on your mind or you have a question and you haven't been able to get a satisfactory response somewhere, just pick up the phone uh, and uh, and give me a call or email me at paul at lifetransitions.com. And awesome. I'll be happy to sit down and talk with you. Paul, I am so grateful. As always, you always help us navigate this. And uh, you're just a good, good human being. And I really appreciate that about you. Thanks, uh, Kirk. So thank you, buddy. So uh, I know if you're not taking notes, don't worry. We're taking notes for you. You can flip up to the notes, uh, whether you're listening on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, doesn't matter. All of Paul's information is going to be listed down there. There'll be links. You can just reach out to him and you're going to see he is just as nice when you talk to him personally as you experience on this podcast. So hope you guys enjoyed today. Keep sending us suggestions for things you guys want to see. You're going to see we've got an amazing lineup coming your way. Um, so uh, keep sharing this with with your friends and until we see you guys next time or you hear from us next time keep watching or keep listening to the best practices show you guys enjoy your day so there you have it another great episode hope you guys enjoyed it hey and thank you for showing up i just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends and if you're really enjoying the podcast could you do me a favor could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm gonna spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.